welcome back to Holy Conversations, a podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Hope that you all are doing great today as you tune in to listen. I am with my co-host, Reverend Bob Kaler. Bob, how are you doing today? Doing very well. We are excited today to talk about our mailbag and this opportunity to have questions answered. We're getting all kinds of questions. Stephanie, I'm pretty sure you get questions. I get questions from people as well. What kind of questions are people asking you? You know, I I find that I get a lot of questions about how the change in Methodism is going to affect people personally. You know, we're all kind of concerned about how is it going to affect my church? How is it going to affect me? Uh, But just a lot of interesting questions about that. And I'm excited about what we're going to be dealing with on the podcast today, because I think it's going to help people really understand where we're headed. But what about you, Bob? What kind of questions are you getting right now? Yeah, being out here in the West, I get tons of questions all the time from from laity and clergy in different locations, wondering about when, how, why, uh, what's going to happen next, and and how do we get there? The delay in general conference has caused a little bit of consternation. But as we were saying before we we jumped on, this delay has also given us a chance to kind of get some things uh, lined up. And so we we are really privileged today to have Keith Boyette, the president of the WCA, with us. And um, we're going to talk about a large number of, of questions that have to do with people and process and property. So welcome, Keith. It's great to have you with us. I used to say the most traveled man in Methodism, but probably the most Zoomed man in Methodism at this point, right? <laughs> That's right. I've found that it's a lot easier to navigate Zoom than it is airports and airlines. So uh, I'm really liking this. Uh, I miss the pressing the flesh, the personal interaction face-to-face, but um, you're right. Um, no traveling since um, mid-March. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, this is a different sort of traveling. I think, I, I do, I, I think about that too. I long for that opportunity to be with people, but there is a convenience factor that goes on. You can get a lot more done just sitting in your chair uh, than, than uh, you know, there's no flight delays, right? With, That's right. With this. <laughs> Of course, you're also not racking up any frequent flyer miles this way, which is a drag. <laughs> but the problem is that uh, I always said, uh, once I get off an airplane after, uh, you know, the 50th trip, the last thing I want to do is get on an airplane and use frequent flyer miles. So they weren't all that much of a benefit to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there are people out there who would love to have them. I have a bunch stored up, you know, from from stuff that was canceled. So I'd like all these these, mm-hmm. you know, banked funds and all that kind of stuff. So there should be a really wicked, awesome vacation in my future, but who knows yeah. at this point. <laughs> right. Well, we, we're going to get into some nitty gritty here today with the mailbag. And before we do that, since it's been a few months since we last had you on the podcast, I wonder if you could give people just a brief update on where things stand with the protocol and the timeline and all of that as we look forward to uh, the launch of the new denomination. Can you just give us a little bit of a sort of a snapshot of where things stand at the moment? Sure. Thanks, Bob. And by the way, I'm really excited about these mailbag episodes. And I know you'll tell people at some point how they can submit questions, but this is a great way for us to get information out to lots of people. So thanks for the idea. Thanks for the opportunity to be part of this. Well, as everyone knows, the um, um, Things have have taken a a huge turn in our journey with uh, the advent of COVID-19, the postponement of General Conference. Uh, All of us have been dealing with the repercussions of um, responding to COVID-19. And that, of course, has taken a huge focus uh, and energy on the part of leaders in the United Methodist Church. And then you layer over that uh, the racial uh, strife and um, uh, tension that has existed in our country. Um, another uh, huge uh, focus for us as uh, Christian leaders across the course of the summer. And then you have just the, the summer schedule. Um, people tend to become less um, focused on larger issues at times. And we're coming out of that. And I'm seeing a lot of uh, anxiety as people realize the rescheduled general conference is now August 29th through September 7th of 2021. So we're approaching the one year countdown toward that. Um, 
Um, I, I anticipate that the mediation team that negotiated the protocol agreement will reconvene here shortly in the fall uh, to resume uh, work in adjusting the protocol legislation for the delay in timetable. We last met on April the 16th. And at that time, all of the members of the team voiced their continued commitment to the protocol. Uh, no one has indicated any doubts about it or, or change in, in heart with respect to it. Uh, in addition, uh, the, all of the advocacy groups that uh, endorsed the protocol originally have remained firm in their endorsement. They continue to, um, to uh, speak into that and indicate that they're supporting the adoption of the legislation. And, and in fact, some centrist and progressive groups are, are meeting to plan next steps of how they're going to um, modify the existing United Methodist Church to be the post-separation United Methodist Church. And that, that I see that as a positive development because it indicates that they're still invested in the adoption of the protocol. Of course, the circumstances that make uh, adoption of the protocol necessary still exist. We still have the conflict within the church, COVID-19, racial tensions haven't changed that. And most commentators that I have read continue to believe that separation is necessary. Uh, the WCA, along with its partners, has everything ready to launch a new global traditional Methodist church once the protocol legislation is adopted and General Conference 2021 adjourns. And um, annual conferences, local churches, clergy will be able to separate from the United Methodist Church and align with this new church almost immediately upon adjournment of uh, the General Conference after, of course, they comply with the steps that are outlined in the protocol legislation. And in this period, uh, really since um, uh, the COVID shutdown, as it were, has occurred, um, we formed a transitional leadership council and that council has been meeting to provide leadership as we move through this uh, uh, period of launch and then to, to carry us through the period of once we launch until we get to a convening conference. So, there may not appear to be a lot going on uh, in the public eye, but there is a whole lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, not being kept in secret. It's just the kind of work that needs to be done if we're going to be ready to move ahead. And of course, we we grieve the loss of Bishop Yambasu, who, who uh, you know, was really kind of the catalyst for the protocol as well. It was really tragic to hear of his of his death. Yes, and um, um, I was going to mention that. Uh, uh, Bishop Yambasu, as most uh, of our listeners probably know, um, passed away in a tragic car accident um, uh, recently. Um, Bishop Yambasu was the one who invited the various constituencies to come together in, in conversation. And um, um, uh, he, he was a member of the mediation team. I, I would say I'm getting a lot of questions of, well, what does his death mean for the protocol? And um, uh, the protocol, of course, is not the product of one person. Uh, it is the product of a whole team, 16 people, and um, all of us are committed to it. So uh, his passing, uh, while very tragic, uh, I don't think will adversely affect the protocol. And in fact, I really think it will probably promote um, support for the protocol. It's sort of like when uh, a coach uh, for a, a football a team uh, dies and the team says we got to win this one to honor the memory of this person who was instrumental. And I think a lot of people see it that way right now. Well, and I know we're so thankful for everyone's work, even like you were saying, behind the scenes, especially thankful for Bishop Yambasu's work as well. I'd love to get down to kind of some of the nuts and bolts around property and assets as we're looking at the protocol and what's going to happen as we move into the new uh, Methodism. So one of the questions has to do with who holds the deed 
to a local church property and how will that deed be transferred, especially if a local church votes to go a different direction than their annual conference. So that's kind of one question. But let me throw one more at you too uh, as a second question in line with this one is about how camps and other non-church properties will be handled. So what insight can you give us into these questions? Well, I sure am glad that I spent three years in law school and uh, practiced law so that I could help with this question. But as, as I, I'm sure most of our listeners know, uh, local church property and assets are subject to a trust clause uh, for the benefit of the United Methodist Church. And depending on the legal organization of your particular local church, the deed for your church's real estate will either be titled in the name of the church itself, it's, if it's an incorporated entity, or it'll be titled in the name of the trustees of the church if it's not a corporation. And um, the deed for the local church will, be, will have been recorded in the local courthouse, wherever land records are recorded for your town or community. And those are public records. So if you're wondering what the deed says for your local church, you can go there and the clerk will help you find that deed and you can read it for yourself. They'll even give you a copy of it. It's no big secret. Um, the deed will likely contain a trust clause as part of it that in favor of the United Methodist Church, but if not, the trust clause in the Book of Discipline would be applicable uh, to the property. So the protocol legislation outlines a process that a local church will follow to have the deed transferred to the separated church if the church votes to align with the new denomination. And that legislation provides that the transfer is to occur with the trust clause being released. So essentially a new deed would be issued without trust clause language and it would be, trust, it would be transferred to the separated uh, church. Uh, now, Local churches are gonna to have to confer with their local attorney on what specifically needs to be done, but the WCA will provide churches with a checklist of what they must do as we enter into 2021. It's too early to be doing any of that work right now, but we'll give them that information as we go along. Now, the second part of your question dealt with camps and other properties that would be associated with the annual conferences. And what happens to them depends upon their legal documents. So if the camp is owned by the annual conference itself, absent uh, some other decision, the camp remains the property of the annual conference. So whatever decision the annual conference makes on alignment, its assets go with the annual conference and the camp will go with it as well. But if the camp is separately incorporated, um, its bylaws, and its board of directors will ultimately determine the alignment of the camp. And the camp may be subject to a trust clause and there may have to be some negotiations on the release of the trust clause um, if they decide to align with a different church than the annual conference aligns with. But um, again, those are gonna have to be ferreted out really on a case by case basis, depending upon the legal documents. So those are property questions, which we've gotten a lot of uh, in our in our mailbag. People ask about what happens with property, but even more important assets that we have are people. Mm -hmm. And we get a lot of questions about, about how people are going to come into the new Methodism. What does that look like? How do, how do we make sure we're, we're including uh, everyone who wants to be part of it? So, um, so the second set of questions we have have to do more with those assets. And one of the concerns we hear out there is about inclusion of minorities in the new church, uh, inclusion of our non-U.S. brothers and sisters like those in Africa. So another two-part question, because we like to make things simple for you. <laughs> um, so the, the, the first part of the question is, what is the WCA doing to work for full racial and ethnic inclusion in the new denomination? Let's start there. Sure. Well, from its inception, the WCA has been committed to a diverse global um, church. The, the WCA's Global Council has five seats that are reserved on it, specifically for Methodists who are outside the United States. Uh, of course, persons from outside the United States can be elected to any of the seats 
on the WCA Council, but five of them are specifically reserved for those, uh, for, for persons outside the United States. Uh, the Global Council also reserves nine additional seats to be elected by the council for the purpose of ensuring diversity. See, the rest of the council is elected by the Global Legislative Assembly, but these nine seats are elected by the council itself so that we can ensure that groups that might be underrepresented on the council have a seat at the table. That would be used uh, and has been used to add lay people to the council, to add women to the council, uh, to add um, persons of varying uh, ethnicities uh, to the council, um, to add people of varying ages to the council that were underrepresented. And um, in addition to those uh, five international members, the, the WCA Council currently has 12 women serving on it. It has 10 lay persons say, serving on it. It has four African Americans, three Asian Americans, and three Hispanic Americans. We, we truly have a diverse global council that is making decisions as we move forward. And I can assure you, we hear from every one of them regularly. We have no wilting flowers on the WCA Council. They're more than ready to engage and share their perspectives and be vocal and contend for it. And frankly, I appreciate that because uh, it is their counsel and wisdom that I depend on as I make the kinds of decisions I make in my position. Beyond the Global Council, we, we've intentionally reached out to United Methodist and others in the Methodist Wesleyan family outside the United States. Um, I and others associated with the WCA Council have made five trips to Africa in the last two years, extended trips where we've met with folks from Africa. Um, I and others have made a trip to Europe and I'm regularly in conversation with uh, folks in Europe and in, in uh, Russia, in Eurasia. And likewise, I've made a trip uh, to the Philippines. I've had the opportunity to speak in all three of the Episcopal areas there. And I uh, stay in constant contact with our Filipino uh, brothers and sisters. So we've intentionally established and developed relationships um, with, with these folks, as well as with clergy uh, from uh, the African-American community, the Asian-American community, and there I would include our Korean brothers and sisters, our Chinese brothers and sisters, Japanese. Uh, I've, I've met with the Hmong community, um, with the Haitian-American community, the Hispanic-American community, Native American communities. Um, and I've spoken at regional and national meetings of these groups whenever they've invited me. The Transitional Leadership Council, which the WCA was influential in forming, is also intentionally diverse. We have members from Africa and from Asia, from Europe and from the United States serving on that community. We have, we have persons who are African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic-American. We have lay and clergy, men and women among its membership. We're absolutely committed to being a diverse global church. And we're, we're not just giving lip service to that, we're working that very hard to ensure that we develop those kinds of relationships and create the opportunity for people from all over the world to be part of this new church. So let's, let's dial that back to the protocol because one of the things that we heard and one of the questions we've gotten is about the fact that, that many of our African brothers and sisters did not feel like their voices were heard in those negotiations, even though Bishop Yambasu kind of gathered uh, the group together, there weren't a lot of, well, there, there weren't any other African voices involved in that. Um, and, um, and some are concerned that U.S. traditionalists like uh, WCA are not hearing the needs of those in Africa. So how, do we, how will we be ensuring that traditional Africans are able to align with the new denomination um, especially now that we're hearing some of the bishops in Africa seem to be working against them in many ways and, and making it difficult for those who want to more align with the WCA. So can you speak to that just in terms of how things are with, with Africa at this, at this point in time? Sure. Well, the, the WCA, of course, was not in control of who was invited to participate in the mediation team 
that produced the protocol and the protocol legislation, we advocated for the addition of uh, other African voices. But um, I believe that the late Bishop John Yambasu, who convened that initial group, thought he could adequately represent the concerns of the African um, Methodist. Um, Bishop Yambasu was a very influential leader. Uh, he was president of the African College of Bishops. We attempted to keep our, our African brothers and sisters aware of what was occurring in the mediation meetings to the extent that we could without violating confidentiality associated with those meetings during the course of that time. And once the protocol was announced, uh, we updated the Leadership of Africa Initiative on the content of the protocol legislation. Walter Fenton and I traveled to Johannesburg to meet with that leadership and spent several days going over the legislation. Um, we listened to questions and concerns that they had and, and um, we, we certainly um, encouraged them to address those questions and concerns. So we've, we've maintained a very open channel of communication and involvement with our brothers and sisters from Africa. We're continuing to work closely with their leadership, uh, both in Africa and elsewhere, to prepare uh, clergy and churches and delegates uh, for the decisions that they'll make once the protocol legislation is adopted. And the protocol legislation itself sets forth very clear process for central conferences, for annual conferences, and for local churches to make a decision on alignment. Um, of course, we are dependent upon everyone complying with the legislation as it's adopted, but we've tried to build safeguards into it that will ensure a level playing field, as it were, so that uh, every um, level persons can make decisions with integrity and in good faith. You know, see, our goal is to ensure that this fair process is available. And I don't think we should be surprised that persons, including some of those in leadership, would have different perspectives on what decision ought to be made in these places, and that those who might have a different perspective would be advocates for their position. But what we do ask is that the processes of the church be respected, that um, the discipline be complied with, and certainly we and others um, that are traditional groups in the church are trying to keep uh, our attention focused on that and come alongside our brothers and sisters in Africa and elsewhere so they can make a decision that they want to make about where they'll end up. We know that Africa Initiative proposed a couple of amendments to the, to the protocol around voting thresholds and around name and logo. Um, what, what's the status of that? And, and I assume that that just is going to come up before general conference whenever that happens. Sure, they, they raised those issues. And in fact, the Zambia Annual Conference uh, adopted a version of the protocol that incorporates their proposed amendments. And so that is a petition pending before General Conference, just as the uh, versions of the protocol without those amendments in it are petitions. And so that'll be debated at General Conference. Um, there may be uh, some agreement along the way to handle those amendments in some way, uh, but but delegates will have an opportunity to vote on that. Mm -hmm. So as we switch gears just slightly, uh, I know a lot of our questions have also revolved around uh, the bishops, the episcopacy, that type of leadership within the new denomination. So uh, let's just ask the question, why has the WCA recommended retaining bishops in the new denomination, especially given some of the abuses of power that we've seen among some of the current bishops? So why would we want bishops in the new church? Sure, it's a great question. And many of us have debated that uh, very <laughs> point. I, I first would commend to our listeners an article that uh, Walter Fenton, our Vice President of Strategic engagement authored called Dedicated, Faithful, and Honorable Leaders. We'll provide a link to that in the podcast show notes uh, that'll accompany this podcast. It sets forth why the WHCA supports the continuation of bishops in a new global traditional church. 
Some of the bishops in the United Methodist Church have failed us. Not all of them, but some have. The United Methodist Church places incredible demands on our bishops, requiring them to be part of meetings both within and outside their Episcopal areas that, in my personal view, have kept them from focusing on what their primary role is to be. See, bishops have been an essential part of the church since its earliest history. The New Testament recognizes the importance of this role. Uh, the, this leadership offered, um, office is rooted in both scripture and in the long tradition of the church, predating Methodism and right on through our Methodist experience. Now, because of the shortcomings of the Episcopacy that are so apparent in the United Methodist Church, the WCA has included a number of safeguards in our vision for a new global traditional Methodist church. And let me just uh, quickly tick off a few of them. Um, we have en enhanced the accountability of bishops so that they will be accountable to a general committee on Episcopacy that is composed of both clergy and laity. We, instead of having a life uh, tenured office of the Episcopacy, we have uh, a term limited, a 12 year term. And we have limited the role of bishops in what would might be called the administration of the church, helping them to focus on what we believe their principal task should be, which is communicating and defending the faith, the cause of Christ and the doctrine of the church, partnering with annual conferences. They serve to envision the best way to fulfill the church's mission and to be fruitful. Um, focused on ordaining and deploying clergy who are committed to that primary mission and the doctrine of the church, and then preserving the good order of the church. Bishops, in our view, have a key role in leading annual conferences. They are the primary strategist for the, the annual conference, and, and we want to ensure that they have both the authority and the accountability to effectively um, achieve that person purpose. You're going to have someone, whatever you title you put on them, is going to be in the role of being the point person at the annual conference level. So I don't think it's so much the title that makes a difference as it is how you define that role and what parameters you place around it. Yeah, one of the other follow-up questions of that is about a point of power, because we've had a lot of discussion about are we going to have a call system? Are we going to have an appointive system for clergy? Because that's that's a major piece for the Episcopal part of it. And um, I know we we initially kind of proposed sort of a modified system, but the um, Transitional Leadership Council has has proposed more of an appointive system. And and I think it's important for people to recognize that none of what's proposed at this moment is really set in stone. Precisely. It, it, that's not going to be till we have a convening conference. So all those questions, we, we're going to have a special episode just on, on appointments and things like that when we get into the new year in season two, as we get closer to general conference. Um, but, but just to let people know that, that that's still kind of up for grabs in, in some sense. Sure, and, and what I would just say there, of course, the Transitional Leadership Council is only looking at that period that runs from the launch of the denomination once General Conference adjourns until a convening conference, which I'm sensing will probably be in the fall of 2022. Um, and, and, and so during that period, we're trying not to make significant changes because people will be joining something that is yet to be finally decided. And so it'll be familiar in many ways. There'll be some changes, but it'll be familiar in many ways. But then the ultimate deployment system, we're all committed to enhanced um, input from local churches. How that input is, um, is expressed, we'll, we'll debate and decide. But the WCA remains committed to a process that gives local churches maximum flexibility while respecting the fact that there are people outside the local church that can also bring important insights to help guide the deployment decision that's made. So in line with that, one of the things I hear from people all the time, and especially from small churches and rural churches, 
that's where most of the questions I get come from here in the West. I, in fact, I get questions about this every week. Um, is about how they are going to be included in the, in the denomination. And the number one question they ask is, how are we going to get a pastor in, in the new denomination? Um, some feel like perhaps rural churches are being left out of some of the discussions. Um, WCA may not be as concerned about them as they might be about larger suburban churches. So what should rural churches and their pastors know about their role in the new denomination, Keith? Sure. Well, rural and small membership churches are, are essential parts, you know, of the body of Christ. Let's face it, um, 80% of United Methodist churches worship less than 100 people each Sunday, and 60% of that 80% worship less than 50 people on an average Sunday. They make up the overwhelming majority of United Methodist churches. And many of those rural and small membership churches align theologically with the WCA. They're traditional in their theological outlook. They support historic Christianity and the Wesleyan tradition. So rural and small membership churches are going to continue to play a huge role in advancing our mission and advancing the kingdom of God in a new global traditional Methodist church. We're called to care deeply about reaching every person wherever they're located and significant parts of our population are in are located in rural communities um, rural and small membership churches will constitute a significant per percentage of the churches that will ultimately be associated with a new traditional global methodist church the draft book of doctrines and discipline that the WCA has prepared recognizes that rural and small membership churches are an important part of our, our ministry and, and uh, community. It provides for uh, the deployment of well-trained pastors and for meaningful involvement of the laity of those churches in the deployment process. We are not thinking, okay, well, those churches are gonna get the leftovers. In fact, there are people who are specifically called by God with a heart and passion for rural ministry, for small membership ministry and small membership church context. And we want to facilitate the deployment of those individuals to those churches. Every church is gonna be important when it comes to a deployment um, decision. And we anticipate that rural and small membership churches will be part of our church multiplication and our church revitalization strategies. Uh, we have a task forces that are specifically focused on that. Uh, we wanna ensure that every church, including rural and small membership churches are vibrant and vital in reaching their communities for Christ. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. I would say that I get as many questions from large church pastors who wonder if the WCA is sufficiently focused on them. And, and that's, that's understandable. It's understandable that local churches, whatever their size, are concerned about where they stand in the priority uh, of, of this new entity with a major transition underway. I can say with complete confidence that the WCA Council, its regional chapter leaders, its member churches, and the, the staff of the WC are fully committed to being a church where we gladly welcome and honor the work of small churches, mid-sized churches, and large churches. And I would just say to our listeners, if you're concerned about this and you feel that you're being overlooked, email me, call me. I'll be glad to talk about what your specific concern is. We'll make sure your email is in the, <laughs> in the show notes. And um, yeah, and I also want to tell people that we are going to have a special episode on rural ministry coming up here in the very near future. So watch for that. Uh, Stephanie, you've got another question that uh, yes. is frequent. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, even though we have had a delay in our timeline that we were hoping for. We did talk about the fact that that delay has given us the opportunity to 
do some great things. It's given God some great room to move, and we're excited about that. But there is no doubt that there are so many of us who are just excited about the new denomination. We're excited about being a part of it, what it's going to mean for us. So probably one of the biggest questions we get is when will we begin to receive clergy and churches in the new denomination? And what will be the process both for existing pastors and churches, and also for those clergy and churches currently outside of the UMC who may want to join us? So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, once the new uh, global traditional Methodist church is launched, um, it'll immediately be ready to have central and annual conferences, local churches, and clergy affiliate or join with it. Um, the, of course, the protocol legislation um, governs that time frame. Local churches here in the United States can begin the process and take a vote the day after general conference adjourns, okay? And uh, I mean, they won't take the vote that day, but they can begin the process of moving toward it. Uh, annual conferences here, they don't have to wait for their annual conference to make a decision. Uh, they can go ahead and make that decision before their annual conference meets, but annual conferences will be able to schedule a special session if they want to, or they can wait until their next regularly scheduled session. In the um, areas outside the United States, there's a slightly different process in that central conferences have to make the decision first, and only after a central conference makes a decision can an annual conference vote, and only after the annual conference votes can a local church make the decision. But clergy, they can, they can make the, they only have to consult with themselves. <laughs> and so they can make that decision immediately and uh, choose to align at whatever point they want to. Now, the Transitional Leadership Council has um, worked to outline the process that will occur. And um, we'll be sharing that process as we get closer to the time when it will occur. Um, uh, there's, there's seasons at which it, it makes sense to really get into those kinds of details. There's nothing anybody can do right now. But that process will remain open indefinitely. There's not gonna, the door's not going to shut at some point on, on joining. Now, the, the protocol provides there's a season to separate with the benefits of the protocol. But our discipline also provides that churches um, at any time can move from one Methodist Wesleyan denomination to another, uh, even outside the timeline of the protocol. Uh, so, so that'll exist. Now, the process uh, for affiliating or joining with the new church will be open to both those who are currently part of the United Methodist Church, but also for those who have been part of the United Methodist Church that have already disaffiliated or withdrawn from the from the United Methodist Church. They'll use the same processes of joining the church, uh, uh, of indicating their um, affirmation of our, our book of doctrines and discipline and their desire to be part of the new church and the Transitional Leadership Council will receive them into the new church. And that process will also be um, available to others in our Methodist Wesleyan theological stream globally um, who have expressed a desire to be part of the new church. And we've had contacts from people from every region of the world that aren't United Methodists, that have never been United Methodists, but are Methodist and Wesleyan in their theology who are excited to be part of this uh, new church. And so we're excited by how many individuals, how many local churches and other entities are reaching out to us and expressing a desire to be part of the new entity. It is exciting to see the the interest. As you were speaking, I had another thought, though, and this is a question that's kind of been plaguing me, and that is because I I was an army officer in a previous life, so I'm I'm trained to always go to the worst case scenario, right? So, so what what happens if COVID doesn't allow general conference to take place in 2021? Then what? And that's a great question because at this point. We don't have uh, a vaccine yet. Uh, we don't uh, have um, consistent uh, protocols on treatment and everything that has freed up international travel. Even travel here in the United States uh, is, is um, at times difficult. Um, and so we need to pray <laughs> for God's intervention, um, and not just so that we can have a general conference, but for humanity generally because of what this is doing to every sector. 
Uh, you know, I, I know that there are folks who are exploring whether there might be a way uh, for the general conference to meet virtually if it can't meet uh, in person uh, in the fall of 2021. Perhaps a way for it to focus on a limited agenda that would allow it to take up this one question. But as I had said at the uh, 2019 Global Gathering, we recognize that there's going to come a place where um, churches and leaders say, you know what, we can no longer be part of a system that is so conflicted. So we're prepared for, as I've said, whether it be a soft separation or a hard separation, if circumstances were to require, we would be prepared to move ahead with the, this new church uh, even if a general conference doesn't occur. We don't believe that that's the way we should go because we believe a non-conflicted uh, uh, approach is best for everybody. Um, but we're watching that as closely as everybody else is. And as a good army officer, a good uh, a troop, uh, we're preparing for every contingency. Yeah, and so speaking to that, that leads me to the next question, which is, Another set of questions we get is about preparation. How do we prepare for what is coming next? Uh, pastors and church leaders want to know what they should be thinking about, what they should be doing, what kind of checklist they might have in order to get ready for, for this. And also others are, are wondering about how to have the talk with their congregations who may not be aware of what's going on and why. Believe it or not, there are still congregations out there that still don't have any idea that any of this is is happening. So, and, and I know this is something we want to address in a in a future episode because I think, especially as we get closer to general conference, and and we have a little bit more information, um, that that's going to be an important topic. But what kind of advice can you give to those folks who are wanting to know what do we do now to get ready? Sure. Uh, well, and you're right. It surprises me how many churches have no clue of what's going on uh, at all. And um, uh, there are lots of them, but each pastor and each church's uh, leadership needs to evaluate the uniqueness of their context. The leadership and membership of some churches have stayed up to date and abreast of these developments, what's going on in the journey of the United Methodist Church. And, and in that context, leaders need to continue to stay current. Um, keep uh, subscribe to the WCA's outlook and uh, to other resources of the general church. Um, keep key leaders and others aware of what's unfolding. Don't lose ground there. Um, I know of some churches that have already formed leadership groups that are talking through the issues and identifying the process that they're going to use. And I commend that uh, for those churches that can do that you're gonna be much better prepared when the moment comes and if it's hitting you cold. In other contexts, the pastor and leaders need to help their congregations just engage this subject, begin to understand what's going on. And we've provided already a wealth of information um, through our website, through articles, through this podcast that people can use as a resource to help people get up to speed. For example, some of the early podcasts that we did in a 30 to 40 minute period covered key aspects of this and they're timeless. People can go to them and access them at any time and share them with a larger group or individually to help people get up to date. I've uh, written several articles this year that I would commend to people and the links to them will be in the show notes the podcast notes, uh, just to mention three of them, transitioning to a new church in God's time, uh, the beauty of a global church, and preparation for launch. And they'll go a long way to helping clergy and laity get the key information they need. I encourage uh, pastors and laity to read them. They're easily accessible on our website. I'd also recommend a book written by our friends Rob Renfro, uh, who's president of Good News, and Walter Fenton, who's vice president of the WCA. The book is entitled, Are We Really Better Together? 
and we'll provide links to both Amazon and Cokesbury on the show notes where people can order this book. This book um, reviews how we've arrived at this moment and the important decisions that are before us and what's involved in making those decisions in terms of our understanding of scripture and of the Lordship of Christ and the deeper issues that are involved underneath uh, the presenting issue. Pastors and leaders need to educate themselves, package what they learn in accessible ways and communicate it to their communities. And then they need to be prayerful and engage in the conversations that'll happen individually and collectively to help people understand, not be anxious about the future, realize that God is in control, that he's leading us through this time. And I can just uh, encourage you to watch for additional resources. As you mentioned, Bob, as we enter into the new year, we're gonna have a, a whole range of resources that we'll be making available to help local churches navigate um, the journey that's before us. Well, it's so helpful to hear these uh, resources. I know here at St. Andrews in Oklahoma City, uh, my senior pastor and I did a presentation back in January, and it was, you know, it was one of those things that was difficult to prepare for, and yet once we did it, we were so glad to have done it because it really helped mm -hmm. to put the minds of our congregants at ease and the leadership of our church just felt uh, a little more settled about it. So I just I encourage our listeners, if you're clergy, if you're listening today, to check out those resources. They'll be very helpful and to not be afraid to help your church to be prepared in this. So one last question for you, Keith, uh, as we're moving toward the launch of this new denomination, can you share with our listeners what the benefit is of joining the WCA right now? Because a lot of folks, they can see our news releases, our articles, our videos, the other materials. You can see all those things and access them without being members. So would you share with us what's the upside of formally joining the movement? Sure. And just to play off what you just said a moment ago, Stephanie, mm -hmm. I've found that those churches that have gone through this process, and, and part of it is uh, deciding to become a member congregation of the WCA, that those churches have found that that has brought clarity to their vision and unity within the church. The church has made a decision about its future direction, and that has put that at peace. They're not living in anxiety about how we're going to decide something in the future. But um, the work the WCA has done and is doing right now is just so critical. No one else has been doing this work. There's no other organization um, on the traditional side of the church, and quite frankly, there's not been anybody on the centrist and progressive side of the church that has done the kind of work the WCA has done to position us for the future. Thousands of people have given their time, their talent, their resources, to build what is gonna be next. And simply put, the upside of being a member is being part of a movement that is creating a new global Methodist church. If like so many United Methodist traditionalists around the world, you recognize that we have to take this incredible step of faith, then you need to be a member and to partner with us. It's no exaggeration to say, we are where we are today because of people who joined the WCA four years ago and enabled us to do all the work and make all the trips that we've made and gathered together all these task forces that have prepared us for this moment. It's because of people who are members of the WCA. We are a membership-driven organization. The majority of our resources for doing this work comes from membership fees and we're a movement. A movement doesn't exist for itself. And so movement members aren't saying, well, what's in it for me? Movement members are saying, what can I give away? What can I do for others? How can I be part of this movement? We're on the cusp of launching a brand new church. It's taken thousands of hours of time um, and it's gonna take so much more. People become a member of the WCA because they believe in what we're doing. They realize that the WCA wouldn't be able to do what it does if it was not supported by individuals and churches who invest in the ministry. Members are critical to us pushing ourselves forward. 
Earlier this year, Carolyn Moore authored an important article that I just want to refer to and encourage our readers to look at, especially if you're listening and you're not a member of the WCA. Um, Carolyn's article was entitled, Five Reasons Why We Ought to Join the WCA Now. And there'll be a link in the podcast notes for that. I commend that article to you. But I am incredibly humbled by the thousands of individuals, lay and clergy, and the hundreds, approaching thousands of churches. Actually, there's more than a thousand churches that are members of the WCA who have said, you know what, we want to be part of dreaming and envisioning a more vital, more vibrant, more future, more fruitful uh, church in the future that uh, contends for the faith that has been delivered to us and makes disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, it is definitely a movement we should be a part of. I'm so grateful to you, Keith. It's always such a joy to have you on the show. And we thank you, thank you again for your tireless work and all the effort that you put into this. We are grateful that God has called you to this for such a time as this. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Stephanie and Bob. And this is such a great service you provide to us and to listeners. Well, we're having fun, and it's great to be able to have this opportunity for conversation about stuff that people are wondering about. And we're going to continue to have more of these mailbags, particularly as we go down the road and as we get closer to general conference, because people do have questions. This is a great way for us to answer them in kind of a long-form way. So if you do have questions or comments, things that you'd like for us to consider here on the podcast, please email us at podcast at wesleyandcovenant.org. Uh, we love to hear from you. We know we've got an increasing number of followers all the time. It's really exciting to see that. Make sure you leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps to drive more people to the site. It helps to get the word out for us. Also, you can follow us at, uh, on Twitter at WCAPod. Uh, as Keith said, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be in the show notes, a lot of links to articles. We encourage you to, to read those, pass them along. And uh, there also, there's also always a link there about how you can connect with the WCA and how you can learn more about joining up with us. So thank you all for being part of this. Thanks for listening. We look forward to connecting with you again here on the next episode of Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We'll talk to you then. Thank you.